whether by accident or on purpose, you have found Lords of Order, a DC's Dr. Fate fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore. Beware, there will be spoilers. Now, for those of you that have been fans in the past, um, it has been, as the kids say, a minute. Or actually, if you want to do the math, it's been more like 1.4 to 1.5 million minutes. Uh, something like that. But, but who's counting? Doesn't matter. Uh, I do hope to keep a monthly schedule with the show going forward. One comic per episode, one episode per month. Hopefully. Time will tell as the 1.4 to 1.5 million minutes have told. Hopefully not like that, though. All right. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet me at Teal Productions on Twitter. The Lords of Order has a page on Facebook. The Dr. Fate Fan Podcast at gmail.com is the email address, and bigtimenoise.com slash Dr. Fate is the website where it's posted. You can leave comments there. Showcase, the 1956 volume, issue 55, cover dated March, April 1965, is my target of attention today. Scripted, we are told, by Gardner Fox, penciled and inked by Murphy Anderson, which is just listed in the book as art. No word on colors. I guess in 1965, no one was really tracking colors, or who did colors, I mean, or perhaps it was just a case of where typically colors were done by a group just to get it done, and so there was no point, they felt, in tracking and giving real credit because it was a definite group effort. I don't know. Either way, no colors listed, and the letters are by one Gaspar Saladino. Now, to find this book, you can, of course, buy the original, uh, look it up, as I just indicated, or it is reprinted in Crisis on Multiple Earths, The Team-Ups, issue one from DC Comics, cover dated uh, 2005. I couldn't find really a month, but you should be able to track it down just by the title. On the cover, which we're also told was done by Mr. Murphy Anderson, the text of the title covers approximately the top one-third, with the bottom two-thirds of the cover being actual art telling you what's going on. Fortunately, this is still a thing that was being done in 1965. The cover did actually reflect something having to do with the story inside. That's kind of cool. But the top third, all kinds of information we have here. To the left is the DC logo with a small floating head of Dr. Fate and our man. In case you can't read, at least you can tell by the pictures who's in it. And I don't say that necessarily to be mean, uh, but I'm sure at this time they were still considering smaller kids as being a possible target audience. So with the pictures alone... They had a chance of telling what was going on to get their interest in the book. On the right-hand side, we have the Comics Code stamp. Literally, looks like a little stamp with the date, uh, issue number, and price, 12 cents. In the middle of the top third, Showcase presents the Super Team Supreme Dr. Fate and Our Man in various backings, various fonts, font sizes, just changing all over the place really to, to keep your interest. The bottom two-thirds of the cover, the very bottom and the left-hand side is our setting. Full moon uh, must be fall because there's a skeletal tree here with no leaves on it. Although the grass on the ground is rather tall and very green, so I don't not not sure what season uh, it's occurring in, but I guess really that doesn't matter. In the middle, Solomon Grundy, who is our antagonist for this issue, is holding a loft, stiffened much like a large log would be Doctor Fate, who is surrounded by a nimbus of green energy, rocketing at him in the pose of a Superman punch from the right side. 
towards the middle where Grundy is standing is Our Man. Above Our Man, we are told Solomon Grundy goes on a rampage, and below Our Man, we see an indication of our third protagonist. Special guest star the original Green Lantern, we're told in text with a headshot of one Alan Scott. Next page, which would be the inside cover of the book, we have Friends Across the Seas. It's a page of six panels telling us that 1965, um, all of them are in black and white. 1965 is International Cooperation Year, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the United Nations. At the very bottom, where today we would have Indicia information, we are told published as a public service in cooperation with the National Service, uh, excuse me, National Social Welfare Assembly, coordinating organization for national health, welfare, and recreation agencies of the U.S. I don't know. Did they get paid for this? Was it actually a public service? At this time, still, um, still, I mean, 1965, as opposed to earlier in the history of comic books, say during the late 30s, through the 40s into the early 50s, uh, when things were a little bit different worldwide, of course, uh, public service issues were still accomplished through DC and Marvel Comics and the other uh, companies making comic books with, with any volume to uh, update and inform the public, you know, public service, almost like it was their duty because they knew that people would see it. Yeah, that uh, that seems to be a trend that current comics uh, don't do nowadays. Uh, nowadays, the main message you get from comic books seems to be whatever the personal political message of the writer tends to be. So, the team, uh, the Super Team Supreme, Doctor Fate, and Our Man. We are told on the first page on the left hand side, we have a little blurb and an inset of Doctor Fate. To the right, the same for uh, Our Man, and in the middle, Solomon Grundy looking at us uh, very menacingly with his hand curved into claws held out. Story by Gardner Fox, art by Murphy Anderson. Some more uh, book information here, story information, then of course the Indicia. First actual page of the comic, uh, first thing that jumped out to me was that the DC logo is in the very upper and very left-hand corners of the page. And so is the title of the book, Showcase. All of this is in a is the white background of the page. The art doesn't start until a little bit lower. Solomon Grundy goes on a rampage prologue with a star there. The editor's note tells us this is a recreation of a page that originally appeared in The Revenge of Solomon Grundy, published in All-Star Comics 1933, February, March 1947. Now, All-Star Comics uh, was also one that I covered earlier in the show, but that particular issue was after Dr. Fate had had uh, ceased appearing, so it wasn't a book that I actually covered. So we have information here about Solomon Grundy, how uh, in a former quote-unquote life and I'll explain that why I say it that way more as the story goes. He was the leader of a gang of thugs, just regular dudes. Uh, for those of you that don't know, don't have access to the book, Solomon Grundy is a very uh, Frankenstein-esque kind of creature. Very pale white, dressed in a jacket, shirt, and pants that are uh, torn and, and must and whatever with a pair of boots on with no socks. He um, And the rhyme that always comes to mind for me is Solomon Grundy, born on Monday, where we're told roughly here that 
Solomon Grundy is not real life, only a weird distortion of it. Uh, he's said to have been created by the strange chemical reaction of sizzling sunlight beating down on the decayed vegetation of soggy swampland. Now, for a better history of Solomon Grundy, um, I would suggest looking at the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott's adventures. I believe Solomon Grundy is mainly a an antagonist for uh, the Golden Age Green Lantern, the original Green Lantern for Alan Scott, however you want to refer to that character. Uh, I call him Green Lantern, but I know there's many, many more after that, so I could see the confusion. Alan Scott was the character. Um, Gotham City, oddly enough, was the setting. So Solomon Grundy was born in swamplands outside of Gotham City. Alan Scott was in Gotham City. He was a radio show host, I believe, originally. Um, I don't know if that is like a shock jock radio host that we would call him now or like someone a little bit more respectable who reads the news like you know abc's formerly peter jennings or something like that um the powers of the green lantern for alan scott are relatively the same the um weaknesses are vastly different and uh, i'll bring that up actually a little bit later here in the story but either way um, sorry for this kind of aside. It, it's all coming to mind as I'm looking at these initial panels. Some folks listening to the story may not know this information. For those of you that do, I eh, moderately apologize. I do these shows as a stream of consciousness, so it's hard to say what's going to come to mind. I'll try to control it or make it coherent at least. But we see Solomon Grundy fighting Green Lantern. Green Lantern finally beats him, surrounds him in a bubble of green energy, which is the type of energy that the Green Lantern has control over, uh, and jets him off into space. Or actually, we're, we're not told here in this portion of the story what happens, just that he defeats Solomon Grundy by encasing him in this green bubble, and that's it. Now, the actual story picks up with a green bubble crashing to Earth, breaking up Part and Solomon Grundy emerging from the uh, local destruction of, of it striking the earth. We see that he goes on kind of a, a swampy rampage, just tearing things up. The only thought on his mind is that he has to kill him. Um, I don't believe he ever says who him is. Uh, we assume, and correctly so, that it's Green Lantern. So Solomon Grundy, as well as his appearance, his Frankensteinian uh, kind of... Uh, disposition um, look. Uh, he also has limited intelligence here, but I have seen in earlier renditions of the character where he was a little bit more coherently intelligent than he appears here. But here he is almost muttering just very short consciousness phrases, all of them focused on wanting to kill him, him being Green Lantern. So he rampages through the swamp. We can see as he's walking through a portion of the swamp, the water is overhead. He's walking on the bottom of the swamp under the water. Apparently he doesn't need to breathe. He finds a stone wall that is surrounding a portion of the swamp, crashes through the stone wall, dives into the actual portion of the swamp where he was born. Now, this portion of the swamp, we find out, has been uh, segregated from, fenced off using this stone wall from the rest of the swamp because this is the portion of the swamp where a factory that we will uh, speak on here in a minute, dumps its radioactive waste. That's actually what it says. It's radioactive waste. So in 1965, apparently that was a, a cool thing to do, which of course now we know is not a cool thing because you have things like Solomon Grundy happen uh, when you do stuff like that. So uh, that's, but in 1965, you know, what, 20-ish years, 20 
five years, maybe a little bit more, 30, we'll say, from the start of the, you know, full out researching of radiation and radioactivity. Uh, they're still dumping. Yeah. Okay. We switch to the tower in Salem that Dr. Fate, uh, Kent Nelson, uses as his home base. He is driving home with Inza, the former Inza Kramer, who is now his wife. She has taken his name, so she is Inza Nelson. <laughs> well, she's Inza Nelson here. Again, for those of you that previously listened to the podcast, you know that over the, the years that the character existed in the Golden Age, um, her first name changed two or three or four times. So uh, it Inza is what everybody actually ultimately settled on and tried to use pretty consistently after that. But the golden ball that is in a golden ball that is in the middle of the tower uh, that Kent uses is radiating a message such that initially they can see it from the outside of the tower. Now, the tower doesn't have any windows or any doors. I don't know how the glow gets out, but it does. It's it's magic, right? As uh, Joe Casada said for Marvel, it's magic. So it doesn't have to be explained. It just is. And with Dr. Fate, we find that a lot of times that the explanation for what he does or what is going on or what he's fighting is simply that it's a magical thing. And, you know, so basically that means for us just to be quiet and go with it. So, we'll go. He consults the globe, and it is used to tell him when some terrible evil walks the earth. Those are his words. So, apparently something really, really evil must be walking the earth, because the glow is such that it can penetrate the walls of the tower so that it can be seen from the outside. Well, as he's looking through kind of like a scrying glass, a, a scrying globe, um, a la Lord of the Rings, let's say. Kent um, Inza is over here in a very safe looking, like not the word, um, not going to be damaged or hurt safe, but like the thing that you put valuables in safe. Uh, pulling out Dr. Fate's costume. Now, in this costume, uh, most noticeably, we have the full facial helm, not the half helm that he has had for reason previously. See previous episodes of the podcast to find out reasons, but here he has the full helm. I don't know um, about that necessarily. Uh, perhaps as I continue my journey through Dr. Fate reading these books, um, and just so you know, I will read these, a lot of these older books. This is the first time I have read them, and I will read them once or maybe twice right before I record, and that's it, so that my impressions are as fresh as they can be. Um, part of that whole stream of consciousness things. So um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm positive the last time we saw him, he was doing the half helm. Um, so again, this is Murphy Anderson art. I don't know if this is Murphy Anderson's first art. I will have to uh, take a look at that to see, to see if there's some indication why he decided to do the full helm as opposed to the half helm that had been. But either way, Dr. Fate, now fully adorned, goes jetting to the scene of the green bubble crash. Investigates it, reassembles it, goes back a little bit in time, you know, and looks and manipulates all the magic things. And, and comes to the conclusion that the green bubble is a construct of his Justice Society of America colleague, Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Which, of course, from the very beginning of the story, we saw is correct. Now, cut, go to Tyler chemical company and the president of the company rex tyler he enters a vault much like dr fate had his stuff in to get his outfit which is our man and he reaches over into a large glass vessel grabs up a handful of 
pills and uh, puts them on his person somewhere. These pills are what gives Rex Tyler his superpower. Each pill that he ingests gives him a full hour of super energy. After that energy runs out, he must cool down for an hour before he can take another pill that lasts an hour. And so he can do that at this point indefinitely. I think as the years have gone by, um, writers chose to use that as uh, having caused issues for Mr. Tyler. And so that perhaps will change in the future. But right now, that's what we have. He is getting his get-up and his super pills because an alarm sounded due to a man or animal blundering into the marsh where we empty the radioactive waste from our cyclotron. So there we go. So it is the Tyler Chemical Company, owned by one Rex Tyler, who is a superhero, whose plant currently is dumping radioactive waste from the running of a cyclotron. Um, I don't know if cyclotrons produce radioactive waste, but either way, they do here. This waste is then pumped into a portion of, I believe, what is called Savage Swamp on the outskirts of Gotham. The polluted or infected portion of the swamp has been walled off from the rest of the swamp. So the rest of the swamp is presumably healthy. A portion is radioactively contaminated, and it is continually contaminated as they continue dumping radioactive waste in the swamp. I know I'm making kind of a big issue of this because it's kind of a big issue, and, and it just, I don't understand it, but, you know, comics. Magic. Okay. So Rex gets there first, the contaminated portion of the swamp. Um, now, I wonder if that means that the chemical company owns that portion of it, and that's what they're choosing to do with their own property. Well, that'd, be, that'd be an interesting thing to check into. He finds Solomon Grundy, uh, recognizes Solomon Grundy, hears Solomon Grundy going on about, I must kill him, puts together that, oh, well, he's here in the swamp looking for Green Lantern. Um, I have heard some things. This is Rex Tyler thinking. I've heard some things about where Solomon Grundy uh, came from, his origin, uh, what he's like to battle other superheroes in the Justice Society of America, predominantly, that have battled him. So he's, he's putting all this together as he's rushing in, once again, with a Superman punch, trying to, and, and I don't think that's trademarked, is it, right? This is DC Superman. Yeah. So a Superman punch. Um, but as he does, uh, where is it? He thinks in his head as Solomon Grundy connects first physically with a fist. I must be rusty to let him booby trap me with that right hand. Um, I've, I've never seen the word booby trap used in that way. You know, it's a feint or a fake or, you know, some other terms if you're a wrestling fan or what. But booby trapping someone in that you struck them first. I, I've never heard it put that way. Perhaps that's Gardner Fox's um, perspective on things, you know. So our man is taken out of the picture just as Dr. Fate arrived. Now, using his magic, Dr. Fate attempts to use the surroundings of the swamp, uh, grasses and things in the watery, uh, so, uh, uh, water-drenched soil, trying to, for, uh, trying to entrap Solomon Grundy, using local trees that, as I said, looking at the cover, are completely barren of leaves, trying to trap Solomon Grundy. Those don't work. He tries to, Dr. Fate tries to uh, snowstorm Solomon Grundy, lowering the temperature and bombarding him with snow. That doesn't stop him. Finally, he does muster the air, the moisture in the air, and surround Solomon Grundy in 
a giant block of ice, uh, taking the opportunity to go check on our man. Um, but before he can, Solomon Grundy exerts whatever force he has and breaks the giant ice cube from inside and assails, uh, once again, Dr. Fate. Now here, Dr. Fate comes up with a different plan. He decides he wants Solomon Grundy to grab him, so he um, stops moving. He becomes unto a statue, let's say. Solomon Grundy picks him up overhead with that uh, two-handed stiffness, uh, holding him like a log as uh, the cover depicts, and holds him over his head as he's getting ready to throw him. Well, Dr. Fate uses the opportunity to uh, flood Solomon Grundy with crackling electrical magic, which freezes the marshland monster motionless. Wow, a lot of alliteration there. So that basically is the scene from the cover. Uh, there's several panels that are close approximations of the cover, but none are the duplicate. So we now have Grundy holding Dr. Fate over his hand like a, a two-handed um, press. Dr. Fate and Solomon Grundy are completely surrounded in this nimbus of green energy, and our man who has come to from his uh, booby trap punch, right? Is that what I said? Booby trap? Yeah. Uh, he has regained consciousness and is running at Solomon Grundy. Seeing this, though, Dr. Fate stops his current spell, retracts the green energy, so it is only surrounding him and is no longer affecting Solomon Grundy, because if our man touched Solomon Grundy, he would become part of the energy circuit, and he would be affected by the green energy too. So not wanting to hurt our man, who is trying to help, uh, he's a comrade in the Justice Society, he stops that particular ploy, allowing Rex to uh, assault Grundy, try, try to stop him physically, which has no effect on Grundy. Grundy then uses Dr. Fate to strike our man, the energy nimbus transferring and including our man now, and the all of this, including the impact of, of being used as a weapon, Dr. Fate and our man now fall unconscious at Grundy's feet. He continues on his march to somewhere uh, to try to find... Uh, Green Lantern, as far as as we know, I mean, it doesn't say he he hasn't said what his you know ultimate goal is. As he's walking, though, he um, is shown encased in a nimbus of mm, pinkish or reddish, light reddish energy. This energy causes things within a certain vicinity. We're not told what that distance is, but things within a certain vicinity made of wood to be attracted to Solomon Grundy like a um, high output electromagnet would attract ferrous objects. Same kind of thing, only not a magnet, Solomon Grundy, not ferrous wood. So he's walking Grundy into town, uh, surrounded by this this um, trailing uh, uh, cascade of magically, say magic, radioactively actually, it turns out to be, charged wooden object floating in the air behind him, kind of like, uh, you know, sycophants following some sort of, of leader. At one point, he reaches up and he grabs a, uh, a shillelagh, a bat, a big piece of wood, whatever, but he's going to use it like a bat. Sticks that in the waistband of his pants so he has a weapon. Uh, makes a beeline as he enters town for a local bank because he knows that Green Lantern is not a fan of people committing crime. I make him come to me. I rob. He no like anyone to rob. That's uh, Solomon Grundy. 
So he breaks into the bank, rips open the vault, grabs some money, and as he's walking back outside with the money, Green Lantern uh, finally does show up, having heard, I guess, about what's going on. I don't know, having been triggered by his magic ring, because, of course, magic. So, But uh, Alan Scott starts uh, fighting Solomon Grundy. The very first thing he does is surround Solomon Grundy in a bubble of green light. Now, we have seen uh, just previously in this story that uh, perhaps that's not the most effective way. We have a break here. Um, Turns out, no, it's not a chapter break. Uh, This story, actually, uh, I didn't mention it, but it is broken up into chapters. Um, We are in the second chapter now. But we have a text, a little text piece here that indicates, for readers who may be puzzled at the unfamiliar costume of Green Lantern, be advised that this is the Green Lantern of Earth 2. In this other Earth, as contrasted to Earth 1, where Green Lantern is really test pilot Hal Jordan, the Emerald Crusader's civilian identity is the is that of Alan Scott, ex-radio announcer and now president of the Gotham City Broadcasting Company. So there is some indication of the Earth-1, Earth-2 divergence, and we see that. We, we saw that several episodes earlier in Justice League, what was that? Justice League 21, I believe, 21 and 22, which was the first story wherein the Justice Society of America, which is on one of the Earth, um, Earth, what is it, Earth 1? No, Earth 2. Justice Society of America is Earth 2. Earth 1 is the Justice League of America. And so Justice League 21 and 22 was the first meeting of those two after, I believe, uh, it was Flash that discovered in his book that this was a possibility. So here we have a little bit more information about Earth 1, Earth 2 for those folks that are only familiar with Hal Jordan. Uh, So Grundy, using his weapon that he had in his belt now as we return to the story, uh, breaks out of that green bubble. And so Alan. Scott finds that, hmm, you know, he's he's doing some stuff a little more strongly than what I have seen in the past. So since the last time we fought, I guess Solomon Grundy has changed a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, to a large extent, Alan Scott's techniques have not changed. Here we see uh, another difference between the, the two Green Lanterns, Earth 1 and Earth 2. Alan Scott's weakness is wood, so his constructs of the emerald energy can be penetrated, can be um, defeated through the use of wooden objects. So let's say that he surrounded himself with a shield made from his ring. You could conceivably throw a spear made entirely of wood at him. It would penetrate and it would, you know, he would have to adjust to that. So all of these wooden things that Solomon Grundy has been gathering, um, unbeknownst to him, I don't, I don't think he really realized that that was occurring. Well, now he sees that they are occurring and through some, some force of will, he causes these things to, um, missile attack Alan Scott. He's levitating. He's trying to defeat Grundy from the air, Grundy being on the ground. Grundy, surrounded with all of these wooden objects, is is casting these objects at Alan Scott. These objects, as I said, are all surrounded by nimbuses of reddish-pinkish energy. Solomon Grundy, uh, being born on Monday uh, in a radioactive waste, has imbued within him, um, according to this story, some amount of radiation that allows him to control the physical movement of these objects. So that's what he's doing through force of will, controlling the radiation that is around these energies, throwing them at Alan Scott. Green Lantern starts to uh, battle, you know, 
tries to avoid some, tries to block some. Ultimately, though, it's just too much for him to do. He succumbs, falls unconscious uh, back to the earth, at which point Solomon Grundy catches him. Here, Dr. Fate reappears. Dr. Fate attacks Solomon Grundy. Um, Grundy, carrying Alan Scott over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes, casts again all of these wooden objects this time at Dr. Fate, who, using magic, uh, gathers them all together and forms them into a giant wooden mallet, which he then uses to attack Solomon Grundy. Grundy avoids that attack, grabs that giant wooden mallet, and uses it to attack Dr. Fate. Our man has come upon the scene, sees what's going on, and jumps to engage. However, when he attempts to engage, he is, um, his, his attention is diverted to Dr. Fate, who he now feels he must battle. Dr. Fate's attention is diverted to our man, who he now feels that he must battle. So all of a sudden, these two superheroes that were focusing on Solomon Grundy are focusing on each other. And so the battle against Grundy becomes the battle against each other as Dr. Fate and our man enter the fray, battle each other. Solomon Grundy with the sack o' potatoes Green Lantern starts to walk away. Start of chapter three, we have Dr. Fate and our man fighting each other. Solomon Grundy kind of cheering on because I don't know, you know, you would think you would take the opportunity to go ahead and leave since the two people that were attacking you are now attacking each other, you know go, but he's cheering them on. We have several panels of Fate and Our Man doing different things to avoid each other's powers. Ultimately, they too both fall, or not they too, but they fall unconscious at the feet of Grundy having defeated each other. Now Grundy takes the opportunity to make his getaway. Um, I believe his direction is Savage Swamp, uh, the, the radioactive portion of Savage Swamp, to be exact. He encounters a car that is being driven and is full of his former gangster cronies from his quote-unquote previous life. Tells them the story, because it's been a little while, however long ago um, All-Star Comics 33, as far as time frame was, from March-April 1965, which is when this book came out. You know, I don't know, that's probably 15, 20 years, I would say, uh, in, our, in our time. That's how long uh, Grundy's been out of the picture, been away from his gang, and so he here he's back and his gang's like, you know, yo, dog, where you been? So Grundy tells him the story that uh, Green Lantern surrounded him in a, in a green bubble, sent him off to a cold, dark planet. Well, at one point, a big thing like shooting star pass high up, pull everything off planet, not held down. I go too. Again, that's Solomon Grundy. I would, I would hope you realize that, that I speak a little bit better than that. But who can tell? So I'll let you know that that is Grundy. Um, now we find Green Lantern. We get revenge as he's being pulled along in the path of this comedy kind of, that's C-O-M-Y, comedy kind of uh, celestial body. Ultimately, as he's being pulled through space, uh, move Green Ball by holding sides, make it go where me want. So he determines that he can direct it to some extent, directs it towards Earth, falls through the atmosphere, breaking, you know, we, we saw that at the beginning. Now several, several, several questions come to mind about Solomon Grundy's ability to do whatever he was saying that he was doing. Uh, magic. Okay. So now, having hooked up with his former gang, they convince him to to appease them, you know, help us out. So um, rather than just walking straight to the swamp or, or whatever, but 
this trip is diverted to a nearby jewelry store where Solomon Grundy rips the protective bars off of one of the windows so that the uh, regular schmoes here in the group can break into the jewelry store and, and rob it. Meanwhile, our man and Dr. Fate are coming to, and they're discussing, hey, what was that? And so they come to the conclusion that Fate's power and the power of the Miraclo pills and Solomon Grundy's radioactivity combined caused this goofiness to happen. Um, something that I haven't mentioned is throughout the story, there's a little time clock that is popping up at the bottom of certain panels telling us the time, which is allowing us in part to keep track of how long it has been since Rex Tyler took one of his pills and became our man. Now, it falls through because we don't necessarily see a beginning, we don't see an end, we don't see the down hour between, but a clock is being used to try to let us know that the actions, the activities of one of our characters is on the clock. But it's it's very it's not very definitive as to what's going on. It's not used uh, to the best of its ability. So having determined what happened, Dr. Fate and our man set off to once again find Solomon Grundy. Uh, this time they... They try to keep far enough apart that they don't interfere with each other. We're told that merging his body atoms with the wind, he creates with his magic. Excuse me. Merging his body atoms with the wind, he creates with his magic. Yeah, that flows a little bit better, which he did earlier in one of his trips, I think, initially from the tower to find Solomon Grundy. The Wonder Wizard rockets into the air as the man of the hour is drawn up after him. So he's made kind of a vortex that he is flying and Rex is some distance behind him, still contained in that vortex, able to move through the air as well. Now, I do like uh, referring to Rex Tyler, our man, as man of the hour. Um, makes me wonder if initially that phrase is what was used to create the character. He is the man of the hour, which we've all heard. Our man, he only has powers for and out. So I, I just wonder, or after coming up with the concept that they just try to think of some cool catchphrase and they're like, hey, you know, they settled on one that was already in existence. I don't know. Interesting, interesting uh, story, uh, I think, about how a lot of time these characters were created using just the smallest little triggers in a creative mind, and they, they put together the character. So we're flying after Solomon Grundy. Um, first, they, they see that the jewelry store is being robbed. Uh, I don't think they really know why, but our man disengages himself from the vortex and handles the jewelry while Dr. Fate continues somewhere, um, somehow, to find Solomon Grundy. Um, now, I see, we're told that uh, he is following Grundy by his radioactive footprint. So apparently that's how he's tracking him through the city. Um, I wouldn't think he would leave footprints. Maybe walking through the swamp, of course, he's going to leave footprints. But it, magic. So he, Dr. Fate, he, uh, as he's patrolling, Solomon Grundy comes up out of the swamp in kind of an ambush to attack him in Defense, Dr. Fate forms a magic green lantern figure to distract Solomon Grundy. Grundy approaches it, attacks it. There's a little battle there. Meanwhile, Dr. Fate searches some portion of the swamp looking for the real Green Lantern, who he does find, but he finds that Green Lantern has been turned into a veil, veil, excuse me, very pale uh, simulacra of the original Green Lantern. Same outfit. But it's torn and shredded. He is bigger, thicker, body type, 
pale, white, nasty face, nasty teeth. It looks like Solomon Grundy, only with Green Lantern's outfit on and the power ring on his hand. So he's trying to figure out what to do to get Alan Scott back to normal. Well, this Green Lantern, uh, with more of the Solomon Grundy in him, attacks Dr. Fate much like Grundy would or wants him to. Uh, so employing some magic, uh, Dr. Fate finally settles on something that changes the Emerald Crusader. His monstrous features disappear. His torn and riddled clothes firm back to normal. Until in exhaustion at his ordeal, he drops to his knees. So Dr. Fate does change him back, cure him, you know, however you want to look at it. But by this time, Solomon Grundy has defeated the Green Lantern Simulacra and has been looking around to find Dr. Fate and finds him. So now the final battle between the two occur, Dr. Fate and Solomon Grundy. As this is going on, Our Man shows up. Dr. Fate and Our Man start giving it to Grundy, finally defeating him, and with the help of a now-recovered Green Lantern, they ensnare him. They trap him. Now, the final panel of the confrontation here, we are told, from magical fingertips and power ring pour dual energy creating a massive ball of alternating bands of magic and matter. Now, not that big a deal. Um, we see that uh, we have a giant ball in the middle, Dr. Fate on one side, Green Lantern on the other side. Their powers uh, emanating from the power ring of Green Lantern and just from the extended hands of Dr. Fate. Alternating bands in this ball, Green Lantern's bands are green, but Dr. Fate bands of magic are yellow. So we see here that this is something that would not work for our uh, Green Lantern, for the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, because the weakness of that Green Lantern is the color yellow. So again, we're being shown a difference. I don't know if they knew this or intended this, but it certainly jumped out to me that the alternating energy is yellow and green with our current Green Lanterns from Oa. That Well, not current, current, because currently I believe that they, they have figured out how to work around uh, that deficiency. But at this point in publishing history, Green Lantern has a weak yellow. Uh, Rex Tyler punches Solomon Grundy, throwing him up into this giant sphere of energy. Dr. Fate and Green Lantern take the sphere of energy that contains now Solomon Grundy, puts it into orbit around the Earth so that they so that it's close enough and they can keep watch on it, uh, maintain a 24-hour vigilance is the words of Greenland. And so conceivably, if anything you know happens or goes on, they'll know about it. The final piece of any import as far as the story is a text piece of two columns. One column text is about Dr. Fate and the other column is about Our Man. Now, the thing that caught me about Dr. Fate is that we are told that Nabu was from Cilia, a planet that orbits close to Earth once every several thousand years. When he was about to return home, he gave Kent Nelson the blue and gold uniform, which he was to wear in his adventurous career as Dr. Fate. I don't believe up until this point, having read Dr. Fate, that I had read that. So I'm not sure where that comes from. I guess one of the origins of the character, of which I, I didn't cover all of the published origins of Dr. Fate in the podcast, because essentially they, they are the same, just told slightly differently from different creators. And they range, of course, from the original all through time. Periodically, someone will throw out an origin of a character that hasn't been used for a while. 
to catch people up, and then they use them in the story, their own book, what, you know, whatever the situation is. So several of those at the very beginning of the podcast, I read uh, and talked about uh, because, of course, you know, starting with the origin of a character is, is a common thing. I don't remember Nabu being an alien as being something that I covered. Um, I would have to go back and see if someone listening can refresh my memory. This is 1965, Showcase 55. So if at some point prior to that they said he was an alien, I would be interested in knowing that because I don't recall that off the top of my head. So there we go, guys. There is my return after 1.4 to 1.5 million minutes talking about Kent Nelson, Dr. Fate. Next episode will be Showcase issue 56, the 1956 volume of Showcase. Um, Gave you the uh, feedback places, so definitely after all this time and me now being back uh, talking about Dr. Fate, if you want to leave some feedback, please do. I don't know necessarily what the exact format of the show is going to be. I'm going to be talking about the, at this point, I guess this is Silver Age Dr. Fate. I don't know if I'm going to be alternating with any current appearances like I have previously. Um, So this is what it is. Once a month, Silver Age Dr. Fate is the plan. A month from now, I'll talk to you guys again about Dr. Fate. Hopefully you'll be there to listen. Ciao.